Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have an awesome show for you with one of the smartest guys in the biz. He was an economist with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He's also held positions with Oak Associates, Prudential Group, Deutsche Bank. You've seen his writing in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Barron's. He's also got out a great new book, which we'll talk about today. And he's now president of his own independent global investment strategy research group. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ed Yardini. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining. This is going to be a lot of fun. I would love to go back in time and start a little bit with your background. I polished off your, your new autobiography. I thought there's no better place to start than you know back in school. And I wanted to hear how you really started out studying off Janet Yellen's notes. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> sure. I uh, graduated from Yale uh, in their economics department with a PhD back in the late uh, 70s. And six years before that, Fed Chair Janet Yellen had graduated in the same program. We both had Professor James Tobin as the uh, chair of our dissertation committees, so obviously I didn't meet Janet at the time, but uh, I did read her uh, Tobin notes. She, uh, you know, uh, how uh, in school there always seems to be one kid sitting in the front of the class that's just taking the copious notes that thinks the teacher or the professor is the most amazing teacher there ever was. Well, that must have been Janet with Tobin because she took these meticulous notes and they were uh, subsequently Xerox and passed along from generation to generation. So six years later, I studied the Tobin notes, uh, which helped a lot because uh, Tobin was a very uh, demanding and uh, difficult teacher. Awesome. I love it. You know, the, the cool thing about this book, so the new book out is called Predicting the Markets, a professional autobiography, is not only does it take you through your, your kind of your framework of how you think about markets, but also gives kind of readers a, a history of markets. So you'll, you'll see names referenced that a lot will be familiar with, like Paul Volcker, Louis Bacon, Leon Cooperman. But one of the things you had in the intro said, if books came with a theme song, yours would be, <laughs> don't worry, be happy. Maybe, right. maybe explain to uh, our listeners what you mean by that beginning of my book, I said it's very unusual to consider or think that a book should have a theme song, but uh, if, if I had to pick one, it would be uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And they're basic, Basically, if I look back over the past 40 years, I recall that uh, in the late 70s, the Dow was 1,000, and today it's 25,000. My, my only regret is that you know I didn't have a lot of money back then. <laughs> to put in the market. And I suspect if I did and I put it in the market, I probably would have gotten swung around and jumped in and out like a lot of people do. But uh, the basic uh, trend of the stock market has been extraordinarily bullish. And along the way, um, investors uh, certainly had plenty of reasons to worry that things are going to end badly. And, and they did a couple of times. We had some pretty nasty uh, recessions in bear markets back in 2008. It was a really ugly one. Uh, it really got to the point where a lot of people were wondering what they were going to do next uh, in their next career. Uh, I guess I, I, my, my next career is going to be a movie reviewer, as I pointed out in the book. But all in all, uh, 
the market continued to do very well. And the same thing can be said for the bond market. Bond yields were over 10% when I started my career, and now they're down to about 2%, 2.5%. So uh, we've had two extraordinary bull markets in stocks and in bonds. And along the way, there have been plenty of opportunities to worry. And if instead we'd all been kind of singing that song, maybe we would have we stayed in and been happier. It's funny, it's funny you say that because I was in a car ride today with a friend and he mentioned we were talking about markets and he says, you know, there's just so much uncertainty. And I kind of laughed because I said, when when has there been a time in our lifetimes when there's been no uncertainty, right? It's <laughs> right. like a, the constant worry gives you an easy excuse not to not to participate. So let's stay broad for a minute and then we'll kind of drill down a little more into some markets and ideas. But but talk to me a bit about what you, what you reference in the book as current analysis. And so in your introduction, you, you liken it to solving a jigsaw puzzle. So maybe talk about kind of what variables go into that or your general framework for thinking about what uh, what current analysis means. When Ben Bernanke uh, joined the Fed as a governor rather than as uh, chairman, which he subsequently became, uh, he gave a speech uh, in which he said that uh, he wishes that during his uh, graduate education, he had an opportunity to take a course in current analysis. And he said, well, that really wasn't available because current analysis is kind of like learning by doing. It's learning on the job. And when we're talking about the financial markets, current analysis is really about being willing to do a lot of work to get into the data, to look at charts, to really try to understand how the economy operates and come to conclusions about the markets based on a thorough analysis of the data. It's fact-based rather than faith-based. A lot of analysis, a lot of economic analysis, really starts out with theory and then tries to uh, torture the data to fit the theory. Current analysis is really about you know having an open mind and starting with an empirical approach. How do things actually work and then come up with a theory rather than the other way around? Yeah, you know, it's funny. You, you look back in history to, to so many kind of investment ideas. I mean, even the old concept of, of beta and volatility where people, um, you know, say there's a way the world looks and it may fit a model, but... It's not actually how it uh, how it plays out. So you mentioned let's we'll get into markets a little bit and kind of bounce around. But you mentioned Tobin uh, as your uh, old advisor um, in classes you took. You know, and, and one of his old metrics was a stock market valuation metric. And listeners, if you're not familiar with Ed's work yet, he also runs a, a pretty amazing blog with hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, charts. But Tobin developed a broad stock market valuation indicator called Tobin's Q. And so one of the takeaways from such valuation metric, one would kind of guess would be that U.S. equity market forecast returns might might be looking a little grim. Any comments on that or general thoughts about stock market and valuation, you know, and, and how do you see that given sort of the, the long-term optimism as well? Well, again, as part of this uh, theme song of uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy, if you are going to worry, if you're going to be bearish, then, you know, if if at some point you turn out to be right, don't forget to turn bullish. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's fine to be bearish and eventually see that you were right and be able to tell everybody I told you so, but don't forget to get back into the market. Uh, it's, what I'm saying is it's always better to buy assets, whether it's stocks or bonds or real estate, when nobody wants them, when they're really cheap, when everybody is fearful, when everybody's worrying and nobody's happy. That's really the time where you want to start to think, well, maybe the markets have discounted a worst case scenario and maybe it's not going to be that bad. And maybe there'll be some mitigating policy responses uh, or things just don't usually fall apart forever. I mean, uh, doomsdays happen, but they don't last very long, as history shows. So, yeah, I would say that one of the main lessons here in, of, my, of, of my observing markets over the past 40 years is that when you do have very high valuations, when everybody loves a certain asset, there's a good chance that that's pretty close to the top on a cyclical basis and that it is going to go down and get to be a lot cheaper with a lower valuation. And bam, that's exactly where you want to pounce on it and, and buy it. But, you know, that requires a certain skill of uh, sort of timing the uh, the market cycle, and it also requires a lot of fortitude and mental discipline to say, I know it looks terrible, but this is a good time to buy. 
And only a few investors really have that kind of stamina. Warren Buffett stands out as someone who has very often come in and seen value when everybody else was in a panic mode. So looking at the current situation, stocks are definitely not cheap by historical valuation measures, whether you look at the Tobin Q or Warren Buffett's uh, ratio. But even Warren Buffett has said that uh, his ratio may not be as relevant because uh, not everything is the same. Inflation and interest rates are a lot lower than in the past when his ratio was was this high. But as a general rule, I think it's true that after a big bull market, if, if you've missed the, the first several years of a bull market, you're not going to be getting anything cheap. And you may have to ride out the next bear market before you start making money again. I mean, the market today is a lot higher than it was in 2007 when it made its peak back then. But between now and the previous peak, we were down 58% at one point. So that was a gut-wrenching experience. I, I think it really just depends on the kind of investor that, that you are. I mean, if probably this, history shows the smartest thing to do just to invest over the years as you're getting older, keep putting more money into the markets, uh, stocks and bonds and and real estate, and recognizing that sometimes you're going to get that bargains and sometimes you're not. You know, I, I think you touched on a lot of great points there. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many individual and other investors we talked to that really got scarred by like a 08, the pain of, for many, their first drawdown and never got back in. You know, they, they just said, I can't take it anymore. They panic at the bottom and sell. And, you know, we often talk a lot about the you know, how well, look, I, I feel our pain. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of these lessons learned were lessons learned. It wasn't like I, you know, I, I knew all these things along the way. And I guess I'd be a lot wealthier if I followed the advice that I've come up with now after 40 years of experience. But that's one of the reasons for writing the books is that I did learn some things along the way. And why, why not pass them on? So in your book, you kind of discuss various investment thesis one was a bullish thesis in the early 80s, you know, which you became pretty, pretty known for and, and your 3D scenario. Talk to us a little bit about that, maybe, or, or kind of what goes into making these big macro predictions and, and forecasts and, and where do people really kind of get those, get those wrong? Well, the problem we all have is we're uh, overwhelmed with information, we're overwhelmed with news. And now, as we know, there's fake news on top of whatever is true news so it's a big it's a big mess out there uh, so all the more reason these days that you have to try to f- find the fundamental uh, truth of the, that's out there i think wasn't it the x-files the the uh, the tv show where the line was the truth is out there you have to really try to focus on, on what really is important and what really matters for example one of the things i've learned over the years is that washington doesn't matter as much as washington thinks it matters Every president will tell us that they created jobs, but uh, the reality is, uh, is is that businesses create jobs. It's especially small businesses that want to become middle-sized and large businesses that create jobs. So one of the truisms that I've learned over the years is don't get too uh, involved in politics. Don't don't be a preacher. Uh, be an investor. Don't don't get too politicized in in your investment approach. You know, there were some people that were extremely bearish when, when Obama got elected. And, you know, we had this extraordinary bull market for eight, for eight years, despite policies that some conservatives would argue uh, wouldn't be good for business or the stock market. But it turned out that, while we could have a debate on which policies did or did not help the economy under Obama. What really mattered is the Federal Reserve was keeping interest rates near zero. And it was monetary policy that mattered in Washington, not not fiscal policy. Now, on the other side of the coin, you got Trump, who's probably the polar opposite in many ways uh, of Obama, where some people think he's the most bullish thing they've ever seen, and other things are totally depressed about about his election. And no matter what you think of Trump, and uh, I think everybody can agree that he's got some behavioral issues and, and, and social issues in terms of interacting with people, but that's not what's important for the markets. What's important is... Uh, what are the policies that he's promoting? And the market obviously likes the tax cuts a lot because they are very beneficial for corporate earnings. And at the end of the day, the market cares most about earnings. Not anything else is sort of t- tangential. It's it's funny. We uh, I think you're spot on. We were tweeting about 
this, you know, over a year and a half ago when the election was going on and, and said this is unpopular, but our opinion is that the outcome of this election is is largely irrelevant to, to the stock market going forward. And, and I don't think a single person would have predicted that you would have had 15 up months in the stock market in a row with like the, some of the lowest volatility on record. And, and I tweeted at the beginning of this year, I said, you know, for the first time in history, we have a calendar year where every single month is up. And it's so funny. You talk about the news and people's reactions. You had one of th- one of three reactions. It was either thanks, Obama, or make America great again, something or the Fed's manipulating you know, like the world, right? Like it's every, everyone is a conspiracy theorist. This is a good example of how you want to stay open minded and maybe not get into the um, emotional uh, turmoil that's in the, in the headlines. Because uh, coincidentally with uh, Trump winning the election, we were seeing more and more economic data showing that the global economy was enjoying something that hasn't enjoyed in quite some time, which is a global synchronized boom. And that was really driving earnings up substantially. And that's what the market really was, to a large extent, focusing on. I mean, Trump's agenda sounded very Reagan-esque, and there are many investors who fondly remember uh, Reagan's policies. They forget the fact that uh, Reagan was about as protectionist as Donald Trump has been so far. Uh, Reagan imposed 100% tariffs on semiconductors, he forced Japanese automakers to accept voluntary restraints on their uh, exports, so that forced them to produce more in the United States. So um, again, there's the headlines, there's the uh, the emotional stuff that goes on, and then there's what the market really cares about. And you know, people people still express surprise that despite some of the craziness we're seeing coming out of Washington, that the market can uh, hold its own and maybe even continue to go higher. And that's because at the end of the day, people care what matters for stocks is, is earnings. What matters, for, matters most for bonds is uh, inflation. And uh, we're in a world now where uh, we've got good growth with low inflation. And that's a pretty good environment for, for that's a very good environment for stocks. And it's an okay environment for bonds. So that's a good segue. Let's, let's move into the bond world because that's an area you've certainly spent a lot of time observing. And you had a great line in your book about bonds where you say, so what do all the available data we have today tell us about bond markets in the predictable future? We can safely predict the bond yields will either rise, fall, or stay the same. <laughs> so, you know, you've seen into this amazing transition from a world in the 70s where I think you said the 10-year maybe peaked at like 13 or 15% or something. And, you know, this totally different environment where, where yields are so much lower. So a lot of people would seem to think that Predicting yields might seem easy, but 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 why is why why are bond movements so challenging for forecasters and investors? Well, I think first and foremost is uh, inflation, and people seem to uh, respond to. I guess it's just human nature. I mean, we respond to things that traumatized us in the past, and we just can't get over it. And it, it takes a lot of time sometimes to get over uh, over that. So in the fifties, people that weren't traumatized, they just kind of like uh, went into a coma because inflation was uh, not a problem, and uh, the Fed was basically pegging uh, the interest rate at a very low level uh, in an agreement that they had with the Treasury, and everybody just kind of like bought bonds yield, with the yields about as low as they are today and didn't think much about it. And then as the inflation started to really pick up in the 60s and 70s, they just didn't respond to it quickly enough. And there were, there were actually a few forecasters, very prominent forecasters like Henry Kaufman, and Albert Wojnarowski, who were saying, guys uh, and gals, uh, bonds are death. Uh, and, and they started calling, uh, he didn't say bonds are death uh, exactly, but in effect he was saying that, and people started to call him Dr. Death or Dr. Doom. And he was right. The bond yield went up, which meant bond prices got clobbered. And then wouldn't you know it, just when bond yields got into double digits uh, and everybody was bearish, that was exactly when you wanted to own them. And I recall, um, you know, in the late 70s, uh, Henry Kaufman would have these annual gatherings at the Waldorf Astoria, and they'd be packed to the rafters because he was so widely respected. So, you know, the, the, his, his bearish sermon got the most people into the church, really just at, at the wrong time, because that was exactly where you wanted to own those bonds. And then inflation came down much more rapidly than widely expected. I was a disinflationist. I believed inflation would come down, but 
came down even faster than I thought. So getting inflation right is extremely important for getting the bond market right. And, you know, with benefit of hindsight, it doesn't look like it's that hard. But look at today. I mean, you've got some people who are convinced that inflation is going to make a remarkable rebound here because the labor market's tight. And then there's lots of others saying that, uh, well, but it hasn't. Uh, you know, put me in the skeptical camp. Well, it hasn't, and I think there's some powerful forces uh, keeping it down. I have found o- over the years that the bond yield, the 10-year bond yield, tends to trade around the growth rate of nominal GDP. So right now, nominal GDP in the fourth quarter was up, and this is not just real GDP, it's including the price component. And right now, it's up 4.4%, and yet the bond yield is just below 3%. So, you know, when you look at that chart historically, you'll see that they're, 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 the bond yield tends to be in the same neighborhood, but never quite, never quite in the same place as nominal GDP. And trying to figure out and assess why that's the case is kind of important. So, you know, since 2008, the bond yield has been consistently below nominal GDP because uh, the Federal Reserve and other central banks have kept bond yields down. So I guess the answer to your question is uh, you got to get inflation right, you got to get uh, central bankers right, you got to get nominal GDP right. Uh, a lot of moving parts. You had a you had a great phrase you became pretty famous for when you were talking about bond yields and mentioned the book where you had said that you were looking for bonds to get back to hat size yields, and I love that description. And and but it also made me think. I was laughing because bond yields have come down so low. What, what's your opinions? At least to me, this has been one of the bigger surprises of this past cycle or last 10, 15, 20 years is talk to me about a world where there's negative yielding sovereigns. You know, I think that would have surprised a lot of people and still does. What's, what's kind of your general the thoughts on, uh, on kind of that, that scenario? You know, I, I try to be pragmatic and empirical about all these things, but I do have my own opinions that are tend to be on the conservative side. And from that perspective, I thought these central bankers were nuts doing what they were doing with uh, with ultra easy monetary policies. I I guess I was all for QE1. Uh, you know, uh, the, the first round of Fed purchases of Treasuries uh, that in 2008, 2009, when everything looked like it was falling apart. Uh, but then they came up with uh, two more similar programs, and because interest rates, they brought interest rates down to zero, and they couldn't think of anything else to do other than going into the bond market and buying bonds. But that was like basically rigging the bond market. I mean, uh, that's not capitalism. I'm a big kind of free market entrepreneurial capitalist, not a crony capitalist, I should say. So I think that uh, I, I didn't see the purpose of uh, distorting the bond market like that. But on the other hand, look, you know, got to give them credit. Uh, I mean, the world did not fall apart. We are now seeing sustainable economic uh, growth almost everywhere with uh, with low inflation. I guess there still could be a reckoning. I mean, right now the Fed has announced that uh, over the next several years they intend to, you know, dramatically reduce the size of their uh, holdings of treasuries. At the same time, the federal government has decided that they want to increase the federal deficit. So. If inflation ever does make a comeback, we're going to have a heck of a price to pay uh, with higher bond yields and its impact on uh, on economic growth. So um, I, I could envisage a really uh, nasty, ugly scenario, uh, which, for the benefit of hindsight, would say that you know, that, you know, if you have gain at some and you're kind of stealing from the future, at some point the future comes and bites you and you get the pain. But that's just not happening. And again, there I go again, being a preacher rather than a an investor. That's all right. You can put on your academic hat here. I mean, I know for a long time, you uh, certainly a lot of commentary and observations of what's going on in the Fed. Kind of looking back and, you know, as we transition from your fellow bulldog to to new Fed chairman, any, any main observations? You know, I, there's a great question in the book, and I can't remember who asked it or what the the intro to this was, but they basically said, why, you know, why doesn't the Fed just target you know, a certain level of inflation. And now it seems like it's transitioned from where it was more of a monetary to uh, an inflation targeting world. Maybe, maybe just talk a little bit about kind of the evolution of 
how it's, you've been watching the Fed for over 30 years and, and maybe just talk a little bit about the transition, what you've seen, the differences and kind of where, where you think uh, the last few years and going forward, kind of what the, what the picture looks like. Well, we've certainly been through a lot of business cycles uh, with the Fed and uh, many of them resulting from uh, Fed policies. Um, uh, there was a time when people used to talk about the Fed raising interest rates too little, too late, being behind the curve. And then the Fed would realize that that was the case, and then they'd scramble to raise interest rates to get ahead of inflation, and that would cause a recession, and then they get a financial crisis, and they'd react to that by bringing interest rates right back down. It was, a, it was almost a dance. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it just happened over and over again. Now, in 2000, and in early 2000, uh, Ben Bernanke, again, before he was a Fed, uh, Fed chairman, but he was the Fed governor, started talking about the great moderation, the, the idea that monetary policy had succeeded in, mon- in moderating the business cycle. And four years later, bam, we got hit with the, the Great Recession. And now, ironically, we seem to be going through the Great Moderation Part 2 because uh, growth has been fairly moderate and inflation really has been very uh, s- subdued. I think the Fed has come around to do a few things. Uh, one is uh, they they did go from having sort of implicit inflation targets to having an explicit one. And once you know it, they uh, adopted an explicit inflation target just in time for wondering why they couldn't get it up to that target. If they had adopted something like that many years ago when inflation was, was well above their target, uh, we might have had less inflation because they would have responded more quickly to above target inflation. I, I think uh, there's still um, a lot of groupthink going on at the Fed. They, uh, they they don't seem to completely be able to get uh, away from their models, particularly the Phillips curve model, which posits an inverse relation between inflation and unemployment. And they still think that with the unemployment rate so low that at some point uh, inflation should make a, uh, a comeback. And they don't seem to really see the big picture, uh, which I think I've seen for the past 40 years, and that is that uh, disinflation has been powered by globalization. I spotted the end of the Cold War as being fundamentally uh, disinflationary, if not deflationary, because of global competition and cheaper labor around the world. They don't really seem to really, I mean, I don't think they've got any economists studying technological disruption or innovation. They still kind of, uh, as a by the way, say, oh, well, maybe Amazon has something to do with low inflation, and they'll spend lots of time and lots of statistics, uh, statistical regression studying fairly conventional stuff, but when it comes to really trying to understand technology and how it disrupts the economy uh, for, for both good and bad, they, they don't have those tools. They don't, they don't have those studies. They're macroeconomists. They, they learn certain things in grad school and they certain models, and they can't seem to get over that. Maybe that's the one advantage of uh, having Jerome Powell is that he's a lawyer, so he's maybe more open to different types of ways of uh, viewing things. But, you know, Greenspan uh, was a macroeconomist, Bernanke, Yalen, um, and there's a lot of groupthink, a lot of focusing on models and the way the economy should behave and then surprised that it wasn't behaving that way rather than trying to figure out, well, what are we missing? I love it. It's interesting. You know, you, you mentioned briefly there, you started to touch on technology. And the, your book sort of has a, an entire chapter on predicting the future. And so you talk a lot about productivity and disruption, revolutions in energy, robotics, cloud, so on. Where do you where do you kind of see the biggest changes coming? And, and any broad takeaways for listeners on how that may affect, you know, markets in general or any any just kind of general thoughts there? Well, I think we're clearly seeing that the pace of technological innovation is increasing. We're not only do we have newer and newer varieties of technologies, but they they are user friendly sooner than in the past and they get they proliferate faster. So the PC revolution, the software revolution that came with the PC revolution Oh, that, a lot of that took place during the 1990s, and then we saw that uh, morph into uh, more mobile devices uh, like laptops and smartphones. And then we went from the server model of doing our work to uh, the cloud, uh, where instead of each one of our companies having their own servers or servers at a server farm, now everybody just kind of rents 
some space on uh, on the cloud. Now I'm even hearing about computing on the on the edge, uh, which is you know we've got all these Internet of Things now. I mean, the, an automobile that's uh, going to be autonomous driven uh, is going to be uh, basically uh, an Internet of Things. Uh, it's going to be hooked into the internet. It's going to be have GPS, but you don't want it to be doing a lot of its computing on the cloud because it takes too many nanoseconds to kind of go back and forth. You want to cut the computing time, so more and more computing is going to be done on the edge. It's going to be done by the car itself rather uh, on the cloud. And then another revolutionary development here, apparently we're on the edge of seeing something called quantum computers. I wrote about it, and I still don't quite understand it. It's a radically different architecture for computing, and there's some things that's not going to do very well, but other things that it's going to do so much faster than we can do with our current technology. So it all means that artificial intelligence and robotics is going to are going to be innovations that are going to be more and more incorporated into our daily lives. And I'm not pessimistic in thinking that it's going to replace us all and we're all going to be unemployed. I think Japan is a country that demonstrates that uh, you can have a very low unemployment rate and still have lots of robotics. I think uh, we're going to find that as uh, as populations uh, age around the world and working populations growth rates slow down, that uh, robotics and automation will be very much an integral part of our um, daily usage uh, of the way we run our businesses and the way we we run our homes. Of course, there's some technology always has its dark sides. I mean, uh, I watched the Olympics in uh, South Korea along with everybody else was totally impressed by how they used all these thousands of drones to uh, make all these beautiful uh, figures up in the sky. But those technologies are being perfected now for being used in a military fashion. So, um, yeah, technology, uh, as we learned from uh, from the atom bomb, uh, can do some horrible things. And uh, on the other hand, it could uh, certainly increase uh, everybody's standard of, of of living. I mean, uh, cars, you know, thirty thousand dollar cars is a better car today than a thirty thousand dollar car was ten years ago. And everybody now has access to smartphones, and even people in emerging economies that. Uh, are dirt poor have smartphones and they're using them for uh, for banking purposes and so technology I think is our future it always has been and it's always been why uh, Malthusians and other pessimists have been wrong is entrepreneurs see opportunities in scarcity they see opportunities in problems and they they, they come up with uh, innovations that create solutions you know one of the problems is uh is, is you know if you've got to pay too high a price for something somebody solves the, the problem by innovating in a way that increases productivity and lowers that price that's that's actually a great segue because you have a quote famous trading quote in your book talking about commodities where you say you know the cure for high prices is is high prices and and vice versa uh, and i can sympathize that because we have a very unproductive wheat farm in Kansas currently that is suffering from the the opposite side, which is low wheat prices. But you uh, you're partially known, and and one of my favorite things is over the years has been following your charts and your blog, and you have in your book you name your favorite three indicators, which I'm fairly certain no other person on the planet would probably name the same three indicators. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about those indicators and what they are and how you use them. And I'm sure the, the listeners would love to hear, hear a little more. Well, my, my favorite, if, I, if, if you told me I could only have one, and that's all I could, I could look at, I don't want the CRB Raw Industrial Spot Price Index. It's, uh, it's been around for many, many years. It's available daily. It's got 13 industrial commodities in it. It's been around for so long that it's got some funky stuff like hides and tallow and rosin. But it's also got zinc and tin and copper. And I like it partly because uh, many of the commodities are not traded in speculative uh, uh, commodity markets. Uh, they're, they're bought and sold by people who actually need the, the, the products. And it's very, very highly correlated with the global business cycle as well as the U.S. business cycle, because obviously, uh, more often than not, the U.S. economy kind of drives the whole global economy. 
So I, I watched that on a daily basis. Uh, when I saw it take a dive in second half of 2014, I wasn't that surprised because I, I thought we might have been in a commodity super cycle uh, bubble. Uh, and so I wasn't surprised to see that bubble burst. But much to my surprise, the the index started to turn back up in early 2016, which I thought was way too early for uh, coming out of a uh, bursting bubble scenario. But that's what it did. And uh, with the benefit of hindsight, it looks like commodity producers just absolutely scrambled like mad to restructure their businesses. And meanwhile, the global economy was enjoying the benefits of uh, lower oil prices and other cheaper commodities and started to respond positively to it. So it started to tell me in early 2016 when everybody was like talking about, you know, this is going to be a disaster all over again, uh, that uh, it was starting to show me that, no, 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 there's something going on here that suggests that things are actually starting to look up again. And then in 2016, 2017, it continued to signal that, uh, the global economy was doing better and better. So when Trump got elected, uh, I, I argued it wasn't just, I argued like you did, that it really didn't matter who won, that the global economy was doing better. And so the earnings would be doing better. I also look at the CRB uh, as a uh, ratio of uh, initial unemployment claims, and I call that the boom-bust barometer. And that's, uh, that I can, cocked, uh, I can, I can, do on a weekly basis because initial claims is available weekly, and it's kind of it's kind of bizarre when you think about it. It's a, on, the, on the numerator, we've got some cockamamie commodity index, which tells us something about the global economy, and in the denominator, we got initial claims, which tells us something about the labor market. But it works, you know. I'm I'm a big fan of stuff that works, and it works great as a business cycle timing tool. And it's not a leading indicator, but because it's available weekly, it's an awfully good coincidence indicator of kind of telling me when something's turning in the in the business cycle. And then I've uh, occasionally I'll massage it by uh, averaging it with uh, Bloomberg has uh, something called the Weekly Consumer Comfort Index. And when I kind of stir fry those three together, I come up with something called uh, uh, the Fundamental Stock Market Index which has been remarkably highly correlated with the uh, stock market since about 2000. I don't show the chart prior to that because it didn't work prior to that. I mean, that's the thing about models. They work for a while and then they stop working. So, you know, you got, you got to stay open-minded about these things. But it's been working like a charm since 2000. And to me, it's just, uh, you know, it's three. It's basically, if you ask me, what three indicators would you like to, to have so that you can get some idea of what the global economy is doing, what inflation is doing, what the U.S. labor market's doing, and what the stock markets should be doing, uh, it would be those three. And is it, what's the output now? Is it pretty po- kind of what you mentioned? It's uh, fly. It's been flying. It's been making you know it's gone vertical, making new highs because initial claims is at you know the lowest it's been since the '60s, and the CRB isn't at a record high, but it continues to recover uh, from, um, from since two, early 2016. And uh, what's really started to really take off is uh, the uh, Consumer Comfort Index, which is not surprising since uh, a lot of consumers have been getting, uh, starting to see uh, uh, the tax cuts in their paychecks. So my, my favorite indicator that you put out is probably the Blue Angels. you mind telling our listeners what that, uh, what that chart is? Well, yeah, the Blue Angels, uh, you really, uh, <laughs> you have to get my book to really fully understand it because it's, it's a little complicated uh, you know, when 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 I think about what drives the market, I, I I do try to keep things as simple as possible. Just I'm not that smart, and I find that simple models work better for me than complicated models. And to me, the stock market just PE times Z. That's that's by definition. I always like to start with definitions with accounting identities, if at all possible. So PE times Z is what drives the market. The question is, what's E? What's earnings? And what's PE? What's the valuation multiple? Well, you start, you got to start out with earnings first to get the P.E. And what I use is I use forward earnings. Uh, what analysts, industry analysts think earnings will be over the coming year. Now, if you ask an individual analyst, what do you think earnings will be over the next 12 months? They'll look at you like, you know, what, have you been in this business for like two hours? I mean, there is no such thing. Analysts don't forecast what earnings will be over the next 12 months. They give you quarterly numbers. They'll give you this year, next year. 
So all I do is do something that I best Thomson Reuters came up with many years ago, which is a proxy for um, 12 month ahead uh, or 52 week ahead earnings, uh, forward earnings. And that is, why not just take analyst expectations for this year and next year and take a time-weighted average? So you're always giving more and more weight to the coming year. And that's a good thing because analysts always tend to be too optimistic about the coming year. And as reality dawns on them, they get a little bit more realistic. But anyways, I'll use that to derive what I call forward earnings, which again is analyst expectations for earnings over the next 12 months. I can also do it on a weekly basis, or so 52 weeks. And I use that in my PE times E um, equation for the, for the market. Uh, the only time that uh, is, is really misleading, I have to admit it's a serious flaw, is uh, in recessions. Analysts just don't see recessions coming. But hey, that's my job. You know, if, uh, if, if I you know, have strong convictions that there's no recessions over the next 12 months, then I find that the analyst expectations are actually pretty good for uh, predicting earnings. So in terms of the Blue Angels, I'll take those weekly or monthly series for forward earnings, and then I'll multiply it by PEs of, uh, I don't know, 5 to 20 in increments of uh, 5. Uh, yeah, when you do that, you get the, on, the, on the chart, you get these Blue Angels, right? They, they fly in formation. They never collide with each other. And then on that very same chart, I can put the S&P 500 on there. And in one chart, I get PE times E equals uh, P. I can see the S&P 500 is equal to its forward PE times its uh, forward earnings. And so in one chart, I can see what's driving the market. Well, there's no uh, surprises here. In the short term, you know, when the market takes a dive, you have a correction. It's almost always because the PE is taking a dive because investors, the investors kind of drive PE and they get squeamish that something bad's going to happen. And meanwhile, if I see it, it Analysts are telling me everything's still okay, and my macro data says everything's okay. Then I, I can't say this is probably going to be a panic attack, and then this too shall pass, and we'll move forward. It's been very helpful to me in this bull market. I've counted 61 panic attacks, uh, where the E's continue to go up, and the PE took a kind of a short-term dive, and uh, then we recovered, and here we are at uh, record high territory. So, you know, you, you do talk a lot about movies, and uh, you, you wrote in the book that sometimes you feel like Tom Hanks and Forrest Gump, where you've lived, where you've lived through some interesting times. You know, as, as you look back, so is there any period that stands out most to you, and it could be a hardest for you to handle, you know, a market um, cycle or whatever it may be, is there any period that stands out over the past 40 years as particularly memorable? Well, I, I, I yeah, I mean, I don't have to think that far back. I I, I think I've been I've had the kind of the best call of my life with this bull market. You know, I mean, uh, it was a few weeks after the market hit its low that I was Tom Hanks, not as Forrest Gump, but as uh, you know, uh, the symbolist in the Da Vinci Code. You know, the market got down to six 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 on March six two thousand and nine, <laughs> and I don't know why, but it's just like somebody told me, you know, we just bounced off of six six six. Said, hey, that's the devil number. I mean, we want to get the hell out of there as quick as we possibly can. And then I started looking around at some other things. I had talked to my congressman about how uh, mark-to-market accounting uh, had sort of been sort of a doomsday machine that was creating this bear market. And then, uh, lo and behold, I see that he, in a committee that he was on, on March 12th, berated the head of FASB to uh, suspend mark-to-market. And, the head of, and he said, uh, do it or, we're gonna, or Barney Frank and I are going to do it. And uh, lo and behold, uh, a couple of weeks later, FASB announced that they were more or less suspending FASB. So I, you know, I was sort of attuned to the things that suggested the market might start to turn around. And then I pretty much stuck with it. I mean, I really haven't uh, jumped off of it. Um, and so, you know, I guess, I, I guess as you get older and you learn more, it's nice to know that you can use some of the things you learned and, uh, and, 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 sharpen your understanding of things, you know, it's nice, it's, it's nice to know that I learned some, some useful things along the way. Well, as you reflect back, and it's fun to, to read the book, because you talk about working at one of the older time listeners on this podcast will remember this name, the younger people won't, but E.F. Hutton, classic brokerage name, they used to have the best tagline, when E.F. Hutton talks, people will listen. <laughs> but so you've gone from um, a really interesting career trajectory where you're now essentially, um, over this past cycle, been an entrepreneur. 
and started your own company and been been doing it that way. Um, is there anything particular that's on your brain these days that you're excited or are working on? Well, that that kind of that's a good follow up to the previous question because uh, maybe that's one of one of the reasons I'm having a particularly good time now is because I'm I am sort of I am independent. I have my own company. And, you know, whatever views I have, I, I go market to whoever wants to hear it and, and, and do business with us. I'm not competing with other people in a major brokerage firm for uh, FaceTime uh, with, with our accounts. I don't have to uh, get on a, on, a, on a schedule. I do my own scheduling. I, I try to travel about two, three days a week when it's not snowing or when it's not the thunderstorms aren't everywhere. So uh, usually in the spring and the fall, I'm on the road quite a bit talking to to accounts but it has been a real insight being an entrepreneurial capitalist i mean when you're working for a, for a company um you're working for a company i mean you know even if they give you stock options even if you're you know got a good managerial job it's still different than than running your own company uh it's scarier running your own company i mean if you don't do well you're you're out of business but you know, I also feel an obligation to all the people that work for me. I mean, we're, we're small, so we're not talking about a lot of people, but, you know, they all have families and all that. So um, there is a responsibility in in that respect. But, you know, I've done, I've done reasonably well, and along the way I've been able to hire people, and that's made me realize that, you know what, it's not presidents that create jobs. It's me, you know. Uh, if my business is good, I tend to expand. And I tend to hire, and I tend to spend more money with consultants, and so their business is is good. And I've got competitors, and I got some really good competitors. And fortunately, um, you know, in our business, we just don't have that. I don't think we got any crony capitalists yet. Uh, you know, people who are in a position of power to use the political forces to put the rest of us out of business. I love it. It's all the, I can relate, all the agony and ecstasy of being an entrepreneur. It's, um, it's certainly an awesome venture, but there's, there's the sleepless nights as well. We're going to start to wind this down. I'd love to keep you all day, but a couple more kind of shorter questions. Uh, over this, this past year, we've been asking all of our guests, it said, over your career, is there any particular investment that's been most memorable for you. And so that could be, you know, your first trade, it could be a good one, it could be a terrible one, it could be whatever comes to mind. But is there a particularly memorable investment? Yeah, as you look back? I guess, I, I, you know, I, I, honestly, the one that comes to mind when you ask me the question is uh, digital equipment. And I, I was early on in my career, and uh, this was when digital equipment and Wang, you know, these these companies that were competing with IBM and coming up with smaller uh, mainframe machines. And uh, I made a fortune trading that stock, and then I gave it all back, like, just as fast as I made it. And I guess that's where I got kind of my comeuppance in realizing that, uh, you know, maybe what I really need to do is stick with my day job, which is uh, understanding the economy, giving advice, and then just kind of sticking with a long-term investment strategy, uh, Based on that, and I've, I've personally, I've always invested very conservatively since that experience, especially now that I got my own business. I just don't want to have the emotional bias. Uh, you know, if the market's going down, I don't want to be depressed and and have that reflected into my work. I want to, I want to be objective. I think that's a, such a great description because so many investors, and probably in a good way, you know, a lot of the cuts and bruises and bumps that we have, particularly early in our career can impact, you know, what kind of investors we turn into. So for me, it was becoming a quant for now. Now this can also work out poorly. So for entire generations that you mentioned, like the global financial crisis here, or maybe the post 80s bubble in Japan, where it impacts entire generations risk tolerance and how people see markets. And so that's, you know, where what you do with a lot of studies of history can help, you know, guide that as well. But, uh, but, but but for sure, a lot of my disastrous discretionary biotech stock trading in the late 90s, early 2000s certainly um, prompted me to become a quant. So we're going to start to wind down. So you, you're a big movie buff, and the scale you run is minus three, plus three, I assume plus three being the best. What's uh, 
Give, give me a couple of plus threes you've seen over the past year. If there's anything, uh, I haven't seen a movie in forever. Give me some to queue up in my uh, Netflix queue. I watched the Oscars like everybody else, and uh, I didn't think Get Out was an amazing movie, but <laughs> I found it has, has some relevance to our business, you know? I mean, sometimes you get yourself into a situation where there's so many clues telling you you, you should leave and get out, uh, and you just don't pick up on those cues and they're just like staring you right in the face but you're not looking at them so I, I think it's not a three star movie but it's one that I think is very relevant to uh, to kind of what, what we do uh, for, uh, for, for for a living. Well, do, you, do you have a three star that comes to mind? Because I watch the Oscars and I haven't seen like any of these movies which is a good thing because I fly a lot and that means I can I got a lot of movies to, to put in the queue on the plane but is there any that stands out in the past year or so is something no, you just kind of love? Uh, no, you know, the problem with Hollywood is they're coming up with so many sequels and prequels and, uh, you know, um, so it's, uh, it's it's been hard to get anything that really stands out. Well, it's a shame because we have a movie theater right down the street. Now, I always say we're going to go cut out during the middle of the day and go watch a movie, and I've never done it. So that's on the to-do list. You can go on my uh, website. Uh, most of it's open to the public, uh, yardenny.com, and at the very bottom is movie reviews. And uh, I've got one for almost every every week, uh, going back several years. So you <laughs> you can scroll through that. Perfect. We we will we will mine uh, that, and then Jeff and I will post a, a few links to some of your top ones. Um, uh, and, and and I also want to thank you. The amount of content that you share for free and charts and everything else has been um, a really big resource over the years. Where can our listeners uh, find more information about you? Go to your websites. What's the What's the best place? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the the book is. Um, you can read about the book at uh, yardennybook dot com, um, and then that gives you links to Amazon, um, and then. Um, Yardeni.com is my website, and uh, there's uh, hundreds of uh, chart publications that are open to the public. Uh, Blog.yardeni.com is open to the public. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, still have the professor in me likes to you know, teach a little bit and educate and try, try to show people the, the, the right way to, to look at things objectively and uh, empirically. Ed, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, we'll post show notes and links to all Ed's works, uh, the websites he mentioned, um, some good movie reviews, and of course his book, which I highly recommend, Predicting the Markets, a professional autobiography at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can always leave us a review if you like the show, hate it, anything in between. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.